Uh, the young kids can head out and Marion has our Bible reading from Daniel chapter 4 this morning. Speak up, Marion. <laughs> You've got a nice, loud voice. Got an orange light here, James. Can you help us out? Thanks, mate. Right. A Bible reading this morning is taken from Daniel chapter 4 verses uh, 28 to 37. The dream is fulfilled. All this happened to King Nebuchadnezzar. Twelve months later, as the king was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, he said, the royal palace of Babylon, excuse me, (laughs) he said, Is this not the great Babylon I have built as the royal residence by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty? The words were still on his lips when a voice came from heaven. This is what is decreed for you, King Nebuchadnezzar. Your royal authority has been taken from you. You will be driven away from people and will live with the wild animals. You will eat grass like cattle. Seven times will pass by you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over the kingdom of men and gives them to anyone he wishes. Immediately, what had been said about King Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled. He was driven away from the people and ate grass like cattle. His body was drenched with the dew of heaven until his hair grew like the feathers of an eagle and his nails like the claws of a bird. At the end of that time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes towards heaven and my sanity was restored. Then I praised the Most High. I honoured and glorified him who lives forever. His dominion is an eternal dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the peoples of the earth are regarded as nothing. He does as he pleases with powers of heaven and the people of the earth. No one can hold back his hand or say to him, what have you done? At the same time that my sanity was restored, my honour and splendour were returned to me for the glory of my kingdom. My advisers and nobles sought me out, and I was restored to my throne and became even greater than before. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exalt and glorify the King of Heaven because everything he does is right 
and all his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. May God add his blessing to this reading. Thank you, Marion. Friends, I'm wondering, has anyone here ever ignored a warning and suffered the consequences? Can you put your hand up? Have you ever ignored a warning, a wise word, and suffered terrible consequences? Well, that is our story this morning. I remember it's happened uh, just recently. I, I, I remember I actually read a story of a fellow that was out driving in the country. He had the windows down and the music up, enjoying the fresh, clean country air, enjoying his music on the radio. And he tur- was heading around a bit of a blind curve. And, and as he rounded the curve, a woman came the other way and, and yelled out to him, Pig! Well, he was quite offended. I mean, he wasn't a local, sure, but no, no need to be treated like that, right? No need to be called a pig. So the red mist descended and he got so angry and he turned around and he shouted, Cow! He turned his eyes back to the road and ran straight into a pig. (laughs) A word of warning ignored. I'm sure it's happened to many of us. I'm sure we're all familiar with uh, failing uh, to to heed a a wise word of of warning and suffered terrible consequences. Uh, That is the story that we have before us this morning about uh, the mighty King Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, The mighty King Nebuchadnezzar, who was ruler of all, he was master of his domain, but he is bought low and made to eat grass like a beast of the field before he is restored. And once again, sings not his own praises, but God's praises, God most high. Friends, let's pray. Our loving Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning and open up your word to us and we seek your help. We come before you seeking your help to understand it and indeed to apply it in our lives. Father, we pray that my words might be your words. We pray that I might decrease and you increase in all that is said and in all that is heard. In Jesus' name, the people said, Amen. Amen. It's 500 years before Christ. God's people have been taken into captivity, into slavery in Babylon. It's important that you know the, the history of, of your Old Testament. It's important that you know where each little bit of, of the, the stories that you're hearing fit into God's big plan for salvation. It is a thing that you'll hear me banging on about over the years, church in the marketplace. It is important to put each little chapter into its broader context of God's plan for the salvation of humanity. That is really what the Bible is all about. It starts off in creation, in the garden, doesn't it? And things go drastically wrong when, when essentially pride enters the world, doesn't it? Uh, God creates a perfect place with complete harmony, complete union. No death, no mourning, no pain, no suffering. But sin enters the world. Pride enters the the world. And when you think about Adam and Eve's essential shortcoming, the, the point at which they really dropped the ball was that they, they fell into the sin of, of pride, really. It's the abandonment of a childlike dependence on God in favor of a godlike dependence on self. A rejection of a childlike dependence 
dependence upon God in favor of a godlike dependence on self. I'll make the rules for me. I will decide what's best. I'm going to reserve the right to second-guess God and make the rules for me. I, I, I'm the boss of my own life. We, we remove the crown from its rightful place on God's head and we place it on our own head. We say, I, I know best. I am my own king. And that works fine as long as you all agree that I'm the king. The trouble, of course, happens when you see yourself as your own little king and everyone else does, and that's when we see conflict breaking into society. Uh, this is what's happened to King Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, this is part of the story, of God, the grand sweep of God's plan for salvation. He's fallen into that same trap of pridefulness, of, 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 of hubris that was there right back tragically in the garden and that we're all born with still today. Now, I know this isn't a popular sort of a, a thing to say in many quarters where we like to think that our children are pure and innocent as the driven snow, but I have to tell you that, that as a parent, uh, you don't have to teach children to be greedy or selfish, do you? I remember thinking when I was a youngster that people are inherently good. You hear this all the time, don't you? People are good. Mostly they're good. There's a few bad apples out there, but essentially human beings, they're good people. They're not really. I remember growing up, uh, I was a big fan of, of Andrew Denton. Are you familiar with Andrew Denton's work? He used to close off all of his radio programs and his TV programs with, do you remember what he used to say? Society's to blame. Society's to blame. It's not until that this nasty, evil, sort of dark and, and, and twisted society gets its claws into our pure children that they sort of go off the rails. But I, I remember that was blown away in my mind when I had my own little terrorists. I mean children. And, and you didn't have to teach them how to reach. I love you kids. Uh, think about it. In your own life, in your own walk, with your own kids, you didn't have to teach them to reach out and to grab what they want for themselves. I remember uh, doing many years' worth of kids' clubs, and I'd, when you'd come out with a tray of tasty treats, right, our kids line up, and all of the big, pushy kids would elbow the other people out of their way, wouldn't they? They'd make sure that the I was served first and everyone else can sort themselves out. I, I would basically let them sort out the pecking order. All the big, pushy, brash kids would be lined up there at the front, looking up at me expectantly, and of course, all the the quieter, sort of humbler kids would be up the back, kind of just seeing if there was anything left over them. So I'd make them all line up, and then I would say, right, oh, mate, you stand there, and I'd go around and serve from the back of the queue. It was a wonderful lesson in teaching the kids about the upside-down nature of God's kingdom. Even as a baby, babies learn very, very quickly, don't they, that they can manipulate mum and dad by crying. They work out very early on that if they cry and scream, mum will come and give them a feed. And so we had learned very early on that it's not actually loving to give a kid everything that they want, that you actually have to show some tough love and be the parent and instill some discipline in, in the home. And to this day, I find myself walking down the aisle of Coles or Woolies with a, a kid chucking a tantrum in the next aisle and wanting to shake the parent and say, who's in charge here? Be a parent. Teach the kids discipline because... 
That's our job as honors. And not just mum and dad, that's the church's role, isn't it? Aunts and uncles, grandparents, coaches, and indeed churches have to teach our kids, train our kids that no, pushing yourself forward is, is, is not the best way to live. It's no good for society. And, and the, the notion really that, that to be selfless is, is inherently a Christian attitude. It's the influence of the Christian faith on the Western world. Otherwise, many societies, ancient and modern, would still maintain that might is right that you get what you want, that I, I, I get whatever you can out of life and everyone else can sort of just make their own way. If I have some time left over, then I might help somebody. It's this sin of pride that it's all about me, that my life revolves around me. Uh, the trouble is, the bad news is that God hates pride. Uh, Proverbs 8.13, uh, God says, I hate pride and arrogance. The good news of Jesus Christ, the good news in this story in your life and in mine, is that God nevertheless loves prideful sinners like you and me. Amen? He even loved this tyrant by the name of King Nebuchadnezzar. And Nebuchadnezzar's story here has three quick stages that I want to walk you through. It starts off with this pride, this incredible pridefulness that grew within him as a child, and now he's a mighty king. And now his, his arrogance and his pride has grown along with his position. But he is incredibly humbled. He's brought down low into the valley of humiliation before finally casting his eyes towards heaven, we read, and is restored to praise God. That is the journey that we're on this morning. From pride down through the valley of humility, of humility into the praise of the one true God of heaven and earth. The context of the story here is that King Nebuchadnezzar has had a, another one of his dreams. If you were with us a couple of weeks ago, you would know that uh, he was hammered by a, a, a troubled dream and Daniel, uh, one of the uh, Israelite uh, captives, was able to interpret it for him. And here we are again. Nebuchadnezzar is again being troubled by a dream. This time it was, if you read the context, we didn't have time for Marion to read all of it, but the context is that King Nebuchadnezzar had this dream of a mighty tree that reached up and touched the sky. Its branches spread out over the whole earth and all the beasts of the field, the birds of the air, were able to gather and rest and under it is provide shelter for everything. But that tree is cut down, that tree is destroyed, leaving nothing but a, a stump. The king calls Daniel and says, what's going on here? And Daniel, with great trepidation before the king, with great bravery, says, King, you are that tree. You are great and mighty, but this is God's warning to you. Humble yourself. He's told to turn away. Earlier in the chapter, says, turn from your sins. Turn away from your evil. Turn away from that, Lord, or this will be your story too. Like a great and mighty tree, you too will be brought low. You too will be humble. Tragically for Nebuchadnezzar, he fails to heed this warning. The text says that 12 months later, this is exactly what happened to Nebuchadnezzar. The great and mighty king of all that he surveyed was, was brought low. His pride was a problem that God needed to deal with. Pride really is a, is a form of cosmic plagiarism, friends. I'm going to spend a moment just thinking about this issue of, of pride. 
It's a, it's a form of cosmic plagiarism because really you are not your own author. Any artist owns the art, right? Any author owns the work. And, and pride is a sense that I'm taking responsibility for that which is not my own. Imagine if Lucy wrote a song and, and I listened to it one day in worship and I, and I came out and presented it as my own. Here's a song that I wrote. Lucy would be rightly pretty ticked off with me, wouldn't she? Because it's her work. She created it. She owns that work. And here I am presenting it as my own. That's what we each do with our lives, friends. You are not your own. You've been made and created by a loving creator. Every single breath, that breath you just took was a gift from God. And yes, we work hard for, for what we have, but that is, a, that is a real trap. I'm a big one for making sure that we take responsibility for our own actions. And yes, we use what God has given us, and we work hard, and we labor hard. But the trap is that we can end up thinking, like Nebuchadnezzar, that everything I have was due to my own glory. And that's the problem that, that he runs into. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar says in verse 30, if you've got it open in front of you, his key problem here, he says, is this not this great Babylon? Is this not which I have built by my mighty power for my glory? That's the problem here. Nebuchadnezzar is claiming credit for everything around him and thinking that it all exists for his own glory. By my power, for my glory. And that is the issue uh, for each of us. Uh, C.S. Lewis has a couple of great quotes about pride. He says, pride gets no pleasure out of having something, only out of having more of it than the next man. Pride has no, pride has no pleasure in owning something, only more of it than the next person. He goes on to say, a proud man is always looking down on things and people. And of course, as long as you are looking down, you cannot see something that is above you. Pride always has us looking down on other people, looking down from a position of, of power and prestige. Praise and acknowledgement and, and honour is the jam in our jelly roll, is it not? It's a problem for all of us. It's a problem for preachers and for ministers, those of us that have a very public sort of a ministry. The temptation is always to sort of claim credit for, your, for yourself. But it's a problem for each of us. You don't have to be a king. There is a bit of a danger, I think, for some of us to think, well, Peter, it's not my, this isn't my problem. I'm not a mighty emperor. I'm not a mighty king. I'm not someone that gets to stand up in front of other people and pontificate. I, I, just, I just go about my job. I go about my role and, and, and you know, I, I don't have this, this issue of pride. Can I suggest to you, you don't actually have to have a whole bunch of power and prestige to want it. Think of it this way. Uh, at, a, at a party you might go to, and there's always the loud, brash person, center of activity, wanting to seek acknowledgement and wanting to seek honor from those around them and prepared to have a go at getting it. And there's the person in the corner that's afraid that they might not receive any glory or honour or acknowledgement, so they hide away in the corner because they're fearful that they won't get it. The loud, arrogant person is confident of, of getting it, 
and the shy person is fearful that they won't. It's different symptoms of, of a same disease of, of pride. The problem here is that we're seeking our own glory rather than that of our creators. I am not my own. I've been purchased, I've been bought with a price. So King Nebuchadnezzar is bought low. He is treated like a beast of the field. The irony here is that he wanted to puff himself up, but in fact God bought him low. I think what God is trying to say here is that pride is beastly. Pride is ugly, is it not? Pride is ugly in the people that we see it in. Pride is something that brings us low. So he's made, we don't know, it says for seven times. The scholars think it might be seven years, maybe seven months. We don't really know, but we do know that his, his hair grew long like the feathers of an eagle. His, his nails grew long like the claws of a bird. He was out in the paddocks, out in the field, getting covered in, in dew. So he's down in the valley of, of humility at, at this point, and he's made to live like a, a beast. He's humbled, he is brought low. But bear in mind, through it all, he's thankful that this happened to him. If you read it in context here, it's actually Daniel recording King Nebuchadnezzar's own words. Nebuchadnezzar is the one telling this story, and he's thankful for it. This story ends with songs of praise to God. Why? Because he realizes that pride was like a cancer that had to be cut out of his body. It was a toxin that had to be removed. And as, as drastic as the surgery was, he needed to be rid of, the, of this from his life. He's thankful for what he went through because he was able to emerge out the other side of it stronger than ever. He finally comes to his senses, we're told, when he, he lifted his eyes to heaven. If you've got it in front of you, it's verse 34. It says, finally, I, I lifted my eyes to heaven. You can imagine him maybe down on all fours. If you Google, there's all sorts of artists have tried to draw this moment in history of a mighty king looking like John the Baptist, all sort of rugged and hairy, living out in the field, eating grass, <laughs> eating the bitter herbs of grass in the field before finally he comes to his centers and casts his eyes heavenward. He says, at the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven and my reason or sanity returned to me. I praise the Most High and honored and glorified him who lives forever. He says, I re my sanity returned only when I cast my eyes heavenward. What he's saying here is that it's rational to, to cast your eyes towards heaven and to give God the glory for everything that you have and for everything that you are. Pride distorts our humanity. Pride defaces our humanity. What we need, like Nebuchadnezzar at this point, is a revolution in our thought life. We need a Copernican revolution. We need to realize that I am not the sun around which my life revolves. If you're still sitting in judgment of Scripture, for example, saying, well, I'm going to decide which bits of the Bible I'm going to apply. I'm going to decide for myself which bits are practical for me to obey. You are still sitting in that place of pride. You're still in that mindset of, of being judge and lord and king of, of your own life. 
And by the way, a wealthy person like Nebuchadnezzar has it all, and they all kind of realize at that point that each of us has a hole within us, that even if you poured all the empires of the world into that gaping hole, they will never fill you up, they will never satisfy. For most minions like ourselves, we go around thinking that if we could just get to that next stage, get that next thing, I'd be right, I'd be comfortable, I'd be satisfied. But the Nebuchadnezzars of the world who actually achieve it, those few people in the world who actually achieve independence, who can never be fired by anyone, realize that it's not true that it's a lie. The only way to abundance of life, of satisfaction, of, of, to achieve a, a, a wholeness in life is to actually give it away, is to surrender it. So can I suggest there's two ways that Nebuchadnezzar came to his senses. The first way that we can take away and apply in our lives this week is a revolution in our thought life. He cast his eyes towards heaven and he acknowledged God as the creator of heaven and earth. He acknowledged that he couldn't save himself. He acknowledged that God was the one who was due the glory. So it needs to be a thought life revolution. Are you able to articulate why you're a believer? Can you, have you worked it out? Have you actually got a logical pattern in your head for why you believe what you do? We don't seek a blind faith. We have a faith-seeking understanding. I encourage you to be rational and to research, to keep asking questions and to know why you believe what you do. But it's more than just an intellectual ticking of a box. I think as followers of Jesus Christ, we need to be more than able to simply have a debate because like Jesus, who was able to debate the Pharisees and the Sadducees, it was also a revolution in his heart. And this is the second great point of application for us this morning, I think, as well as an intellectual revolution to acknowledge that I'm not my own creator and maker, that I can't sustain myself. I'm very suspicious of people who come to me, and and once they find out I'm a minister, they like to talk theology with me. They like to discuss how much they know about the Bible and about history. But I have to tell you, many of them don't fellowship. Many of them don't have a song in their heart at all. I'm very suspicious of people who come and talk to me about matters of God and faith without actually ever having a song on their lips, a song in their heart, who don't fellowship with the body of Christ. Nebuchadnezzar's response is actually a song. If you have a look at it in the pages of Scripture, the syntax is different, like it's a poem or the lyrics of a song. He bursts into song praising God. This is more than just an an intellectual thing for Nebuchadnezzar. He has a a change of heart. Something deep down inside him has changed. Remember, Jesus, too, got emotional, didn't he? He got angry with the Pharisees and the Sadducees. He called them a brood of vipers. We read that he had compassion on Jerusalem because he wanted to gather them like a mother hen gathers his chicks. And, of course, the shortest verse in all of the Bible is just simply two words. Does anyone know what it is? Jesus wept. Jesus got emotional. He was emotionally invested in your salvation and mine. So Nebuchadnezzar comes up out of the valley of despair and he's singing God's praises. Until you acknowledge that the Most High rules the kingdom of man and gives it to whom he will, is what he says in verse 32. Can I encourage you? remember that this is the journey that Jesus took for you. 
to bring you out of the valley of despair and death and destruction. He went there willingly for you, didn't he? Jesus could easily, the King of kings and Lord of lords, could have easily have said, no, I'm not going to go down into that place of death, didn't he? But he went there willingly for you. Jesus Christ willingly surrendered all that he had, stripped naked and flogged within an inch of his life, had a crown of thorns placed upon his head, nailed to a cross and went down into the valley of death for you in order that you might be brought up out of it to live with him forever in his heavenly kingdom. It's nothing that you've done. A great liberating part of the Christian faith is that there's no place for arrogance in there at, for you at all. Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. There's no place for arrogance in the Christian church because Jesus has done it all for you. We don't earn our salvation. It's all God. It's all Jesus. That's what, Revelation, that's what Nebuchadnezzar has realized here at this point. Can I encourage you to learn from Nebuchadnezzar from this lesson and indeed learn from our Saviour Jesus Christ himself. To do away with pride, to step away from pride of thinking that it's all you, that you have the power to save yourself, that if I just do more of this and a little bit less of this, then God will accept me. Can I encourage you this morning to throw your life upon him, throw your life upon his grace. Say, Lord, here I am. I can't do it all. I'm completely dependent upon your saving grace for everything that I have, for my future, for my eternity with you in heaven. Remember that it's Jesus, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who has bought low for you and who has bought you life abundant, abundant eternal resurrection life in this life and the next. Do away with your pride, humble yourself, and sing God's praises all your days. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we need your help with this task because each of us has a tendency towards pride. Each of us has within us this desire for glory. Each of us has within us this keen sense of wanting praise from the world around us, wanting to be affirmed, wanting to be acknowledged, looking down on other people, perhaps, Lord. So help us to acknowledge, Father, that whenever we are looking down, we can't be looking up towards you. So, Father, we pray that you might break us. We pray that we might have the bravery to enter into that valley of humility, for we know that there's no surer thing, Father, than pride going before a fall. It's been a reality in our lives, Father, for each of us, but yet time and time again, Father, we continue to puff ourselves up. So, Father, we once again declare, we once again hand ourselves over into your care. We once again say, here I am, Lord, take us and use us. Take us and put us to what you will. May we be raised up for you or laid low for you, laid aside for you, Heavenly Father. Father, we pray that we might have our gaze ever towards you rather than towards the things of this life. 
May the things of this world grow strangely dim, we pray. Cast our eyes, take our eyes off the things of this world, off our own glory. Help us to see your glory, your majesty, your might, your splendor, the many, many ways in which you care for us, the many, many ways in which you provide for us. May it revolutionize our thinking, May it change our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.